Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy on 3 Triple R. Good morning to all those of you tuning in on 102.7 FM online or on podcast. It's great to have you on the show. My name is Dr. Moto and it is my great pleasure to be spending this Easter Sunday morning with you on 3 Triple R. To the listeners out there, I hope you're all having an enjoyable and restful Easter or Passover, which of course finishes tonight. We have a thrilling yet informative show for you today on 3 Triple R. In the studio with me are the veteran panelists, Panel Beater and Cyber Sue. How are you, team? Good morning, Moto. Great to see you. I am so excited. This is my back in the studio. Fourteen months since I was here. Cyber. So, yeah. so such a treat to see you both, beautiful people in person. Fourteen months, huh? Fourteen months. Yeah. Not quite how you remember it with all the no perspex up. Perspex and, everywhere. Yeah. Kind of these. Theatre hats on microphones, and it's a little bit different. But That's it's right. Yeah. Protective barriers on the, yeah. earfo- on the, on the uh, microphones and um, on the headphones, but it's all for a good cause. I'm just glad that you guys can make it in today because of daylight savings. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one day of the year that I feel like I've you know, got up early. I know. It was great. <laughs> and what's been happening over Easter and Passover for you, Cyber Sue? Well, as Moto, you may well know, I'm getting ready for my big trip around Australia, Sykes on Bikes. So today is the big pre-pack. How do I fit an entire bed covered in stuff into two small panniers? <laughs> so that's my task for the day. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. That's always the challenge, isn't it? it Knowing is. what to pack and I know. Kind of and what to, and, and what you absolutely, at the end of the day, it's a really good lesson in realising how much stuff we have in life that we actually really don't need. Did you catch the Sykes, uh, Sykes on Bikes uh, segment uh, last week? Sure did. Dr. It was good, Jay wasn't Dunn. it? Yeah, yeah, it was great. Yep. And for yourself, panel beater, what uh, have you been up Easter, to over the past month or the, over Easter? The highlight for Easter for me is my annual um, sit down with popcorn and watch um, The Life of Brian. Monty Python. Oh, that's yes. excellent. <laughs> yes. It's my, Very good. You know, my little semi-sacrilegious experience every week, Easter. I must admit I was at dinner on Friday night and there was quite a bit of reciting from that going on. <sighs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Now, we are the first show for April and it is extremely important to announce that it is, of course, April Amnesty for 3 Triple R this month. Um, we are a, a community radio um, uh, sh- uh, show and um, entity, and we very much rely on the generous subscriptions and the donations of our subscribers and donors. And this month, because of April Amnesty, we will be also giving out prizes. So there has been no better time than now. Yay, prizes. We like that. That's right. To subscribe and um, keep the show and keep the community radio and the public announcements going. Now, before we get on to the news, I just want to introduce our special guest for today's show, which we'll bring on in about 15 or so minutes' time, simply because I have been looking forward to having her come onto the show for a long time now, and I'm so delighted she managed to have some time off of Easter to join us this Sunday morning. Dr. Jessica Lowe is a consultant obstetrician, gynecologist, and more appropriately referred to these days as an advanced laparoscopic gynecological surgeon. 
In a quick translation, that is a pelvic surgeon, super specialized in using keyhole, minimally invasive surgery to treat problems occurring in the female reproductive system. I've been wanting to get Jess on the show for a long, long time now and can't wait to get into hearing what she has, had to sh- she, what she has to share in, rela- in relation to the latest and the best evidence in women's health and in particular productive health, reproductive health. Aside from our collegial affiliations, Jess is also a long-term friend, in fact, from when we were both medical students. More than anything else, she is genuinely one of the most kind generous and dedicated people I know. It's fantastic to have you on the show, Jess. Jess, can you hear, can you hear us over the telecommunication setup? I can, and thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Where are you Zooming in from? We're Zooming in not far from Sunbury at the moment as we drive up towards central Victoria. Oh, wonderful. Will you get much time off over Easter? Um, only until tomorrow then, flying back and resuming work life then. And Jess, I know that you've called the Harbour City your home now for several years. How has it been coming back to Melbourne town? Have you observed any differences, particularly pre and post COVID? Well, um, more recently, I suppose, we made our first trip back in December and it was a vastly different city after uh, obviously many, many months of lockdown. but now I think this weekend it's been lovely. The sun's out and it seems like there's a real sense of resumption of normal activities, which is just so wonderful to see. Absolutely. The weather certainly is glorious today and I hope to all you listeners oh, out there that you're all out there enjoying the Easter Sunday sun. And it sounds just like you're real triple R on the road today, aren't you? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's great. Okay, let's start with some news. I wanted to report a study that was published in the reputable journal Lancet Psychiatry last week. Um, So it's a study published that analysed the prevalence of depression and anxiety symptoms in mothers before and during the COVID-19 pandemic in Canada. It was an add-on study to a longitudinal survey of pregnant women and mothers in Calgary that started in 2008. The authors reached out to women who had previously participated and sought their consent to be resurveyed in May and in July last year. All in all, in summary, the depression and anxiety severity of 1,300 women were surveyed and compared with their responses collected at three previous time points between 2012 and 2019, so before COVID, COVID set in. According to the authors, it was the first study to compare depression and anxiety in the same cohort of mothers and after controlling for expected populational trends in depression and anxiety over the time that had passed. The researchers found that during COVID, there were higher proportion of mothers who experienced clinically significant depression and anxiety symptoms. Specifically, about 30-35% of their respondents reported these symptoms. The study goes into more detail about the average depression and anxiety severity scores during the pandemic and the three time points they were compared to. And look, suffice to say, there were notable differences. There were larger increases in depression and anxiety symptoms in women who had income disruptions, difficulty balancing homeschooling with work and those with difficulty obtaining childcare. Interestingly, I heard that, well, I read that healthcare workers had smaller increases in depressive symptoms than non-healthcare workers, and also Caucasian mothers had greater increases in anxiety scores than non-Caucasian mothers. In summary, 
This was a very well conducted study that featured a large cohort of Canadian mothers in Alberta or the state of Alberta that quantified the prevalence of depression and anxiety during the pandemic. It signified that one, financial support, two, childcare provision, and three, avoiding school closures might be key priorities for preventing increases in maternal psychological distress and that supporting these measures should be part of the pandemic's recovery efforts. Panel beater, mm-hmm. given your interest in social and health policy, what do you, what do you make of these findings? Look, this, it's really fascinating, isn't it? I, um, obviously, there's just huge amounts of um, uh, published literature at the moment reflecting on the last 12 months of COVID. And it's great to see this is a longitudinal one that um, contrasts the COVID period with pre-COVID, um, as opposed to a lot of the research which is just isolated to COVID. So you can't disaggregate uh, some of the findings. Very um, true. And so that's, I think that's, first of all, that's that's an inherent value of this this one. I, I still find it tricky, and I mean that personally, you can probably clarify, still find it tricky to understand um, uh, studies of mental health around COVID and wondering whether it's the COVID environment that's the explanation for for you know some shift in depression and anxiety um or you know it happens anyway <laughs> you know um the rates of depression and anxiety have been going up and up and up year on year anyway yes very good point i mean you know the study goes into um the fact that they adjusted or controlled for expected trends and how these uh. Um, symptoms might have trended with time anyway using mathematical modelling. Um, and even then, uh, when uh, they surveyed the same group of women um, in May and in July last year, their uh, severity or the extent of their depression and anxiety symptoms was certainly much higher. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, you raise a very good point. Is it COVID? Is it the, the virus, the pandemic that has um, caused this spike? Or is it the secondary flow-on outcome effects, if you'd like? Yeah. So the school closures, yeah. the job loss, yeah. the economic uncertainty, which I know is part of the pandemic anyway, but you know whether that's the, um, more the causation. And then, and then importantly, what do we do with the results? <laughs> you know, what's what's the what's the what's the consequence of knowing what the papers like this and many others are, are suggesting? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess the, um, you know, the study has the recommendations, doesn't it, with childcare and um, financial support and and reducing the school closures. And it kind of makes me think a bit like the property market, like these things have followed a trend, but then suddenly there are no rules and everything just goes anywhere. Um, And I guess I think that associated with that is maybe a lot of pressure and guilt and anxiety that comes from that pressure of looking after kids. Um, Anecdotally, I have been hearing um, from colleagues about a spike in child accidents and um, accidents at home where kids have been um, unattended in the backyard around fire pits. And, um, you know, know, this is the added pressure that's going on to parents when they're trying to juggle working from home and looking after kids. Yeah. Yeah, Fascinating. Mm. Panel Beta, did you have some news for us? I did just really, really briefly. It's it's pretty much just an update on a on an interview we had with Bill Botel a couple of weeks ago. He was talking to us about a book that he's just published on the politics of COVID nineteen. He was making some really acute observations of the way that politics played out um, uh, over twenty twenty, um, mostly talking about Australia, but certainly globally. 
there's increasing attention as a result of COVID about the role of experts in the world, in the policy, you know, so non-political people with expertise in areas that politics needs to draw on. In this case, obviously, it's it's health um, experts and so on. There's a lot, a lot more attention being paid to how the relationships between, say, um, medical experts and politicians um, work. And the BMJ, the, the British Medical Journal, um, uh, they run an online site um, as well as the journal. And they've published a, um, a short piece um, just um, this week uh, picking up on some of the themes that Bill Botel was looking at, but uh, in in this case, making some really strident claims and and um, called alarms really um, for for um, medical um, experts. Um, to the extent that Martin McKee, the director of the European Observatory of Health Policies and Systems, summed it up with, "We have a we with a health background far too often preach to the choir and fail to engage with those who are the real decision makers in society. If we don't understand where politicians, those in finance, and those working on the environment are coming from, and how they think, we will continue to be considered largely um, irrelevant." Um, I, I find that just a really striking claim. I, I don't know. If I'm completely on board, this idea of being irrelevant, I'm not. I'm not so sure, but definitely the underlying point that the relationship has to be um, more evolved than it currently is. Is there? Yes, very true. And look, I'm, I'm not just responding um, in this way to uh, go along with the party line, so to speak. <laughs> but I, I have actually observed personally, and I'm sure um, for you guys as well, over the past eighteen months, we have seen a lot more um, experts in health or in epidemiology, in infectious diseases, actually advising to government and, you know, having a little bit more sway in that regard, which is, according to this paper, at least in this state, this position, um, good to see. Yeah, it is. It is really good to see. The, the one, the risk to manage, one risk to manage with the high visibility of experts is that not all experts agree with each other. And to the general public, when they hear two epidemiologists with lots of letters after their name disagreeing, you know, you can understand why some quarters of the general public you know shrug their shoulders and you know it's like one day i'm told i can't eat bacon the next day i can eat bacon you know one day i can eat eggs and i can't yes. eat eggs now epidemiologists are telling me this and next day it's this and and that's i mean that's inevitable and that that's going to be the case experts should disagree and debate but um now now that relationship with the general public needs to be evolved as well we never hear politicians agree either, do we? Don't. Fair. <laughs> However, what I can confidently say that the three of us, at least, in the panel this morning will agree on is we'd love to hear what you have to say, <laughs> Cyber Sue, in terms of your catch-up news. Well, my catch-up news comes from a bit of a personal kind of... Um, uh, a bit of a personal background, I guess, because I'm preparing for this bike ride, Sykes on Bikes Around Australia, and there's been a chat about... Um, doing first aid courses. And so then I was thinking, is it worth me putting aside half of a day to go and do a first aid course? Does it really save lives or is it just to make us feel good? And so I had a little look further into that. And it's interesting because I think most people, like I spoke to my husband about it, he said first aid courses about choosing the right size bandage. Um, but it's actually, um, you know, I think a bit more than that. And if you think about it, the most common, I looked into some stats, the most common cause of death in a car crash is obstructed airways. Um, an obstructed airway, a person, life is going to cease after around four minutes. And yet the, obvious, obvious, the usual ambulance arrival time is around about 10 minutes. So there's an immediate point of saving a life. Um, 
More than 33,000 cardiac arrests happen in Australia outside of hospital every year, and less than 10% of those people survive. Um, if the heart stops, 80%, there's an 80% chance of survival if CPR is done within the first minute. But if nothing is done for 10 minutes, there's less than 5% survival. So immediately there's these massive impacts that some very simple things in first aid can do to save lives. Um, and I mean, most of us keep our fingers crossed that it's not going to happen to us. Um, but it does happen, and it happened to me a couple of years ago. I was at a, um, a, a, a multi-trauma uh, fatal car crash. And I know I've got a background as an emergency nurse, but the skills that I used in that were first aid skills of staying calm, uh, assessing for safety, triaging the people at the scene and so forth. So it does happen to us. And I guess coming back to kind of Kent's comment on policy is it made me think about it's all very well me doing first aid, but what about if I need the first aid? And I know that around the world, and in the UK, for example, there's been a real push for um, mandatory first aid training in schools. And in fact, that came in in 2020. And also to um, have it as part of the learner licence um, or um, you know the LLP plates training that people have to do first aid. And I think that's a great policy approach when you think about the broad risk-taking of teenagers, generally speaking. So... I guess that was my little news story. Um, yeah, it's, it's a big deal when you're facing, say, a potential fatality on, a, you know, a car crash scene or something like that. But in reality, would it be true to say that m most of the benefit of knowing first aid is how to how to help somebody who's broken a leg um, while waiting for something, or somebody's you know tripped over and hit their head and they just need? Well, it may be, it may be, and I think a big part of it is feeling staying calm and having the ability to do something because there'd be nothing worse than having the burden of being at a, any kind of trauma and knowing that you. You have no idea what to do for that person and you actually had the potential where you might have been able to save a life or make a real difference yeah very true i can't speak um, highly enough of the first responders and um, people who uh, do have the basic life support skills up their sleeve for um, when uh, you know accidents occur or serious accidents occur and you know they play an extremely uh, instrumental role in saving a life this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, folks, we are ecstatic to have on the show today obstetrician and gynaecologist and laparoscopic gynaecological surgeon, Dr. Jess Lowe, here to talk to us about the latest developments and evidence base in women's health. Jess, in the news segment earlier, I talked about the increased prevalence of depression and anxiety in Canadian mothers, published last week in the journal Lancet Psychiatry. But maybe shifting across to you because you've got skin in the game and you're stomping the pavement in the um, clinical space when it comes to women's health. What do we know about how COVID-19 has affected women's health or particularly maybe even pregnancy? We um, anecdotally definitely have experienced um, a significant increase in women expressing um, sort of a lot of anxiety, particularly 12 months ago when there was increasing awareness that this was going to be a global phenomenon and, and not much evidence in terms of the impact on both women and potentially their unborn babies. Um, but we are a little bit further down the line now and um, there's more and more evidence um, coming out, both on obviously the psychosocial impact but also on the physical impact for, for women and their babies. And thankfully it's largely reassuring 
um, that there now have been thousands of women that have had COVID in either early or, or later pregnancy. Um, and thankfully, most of them have done very well. And we know that about a third of women who have contracted COVID have needed to be hospitalised. And of those women, only 10% has ended up in ICU. And that's probably because they're generally a younger population than the main population that were affected particularly quite severely with COVID were, of course, the, the, the over 80s and particularly the older and, and people who had more of the other associated medical conditions of obesity and heart disease and so forth. Thankfully, a lot of our women are, are much younger and, and much generally um, in better health. So... Um, but obviously we do know that there's been cases of uh, vertical transmission, which was one of the other things that people were concerned about, that potentially babies were going to be born that um, then became quite unwell. Um, but that hasn't actually been the case, that there have been cases where, where babies have been affected, but most of them have done very well. And it's probably something to do with the virus, that we know that, that children and infants who have been infected have often um, either been asymptomatic or had very mild cases with the, the exception of some of those children that then um, went on to develop some of the cardiac complications, um, but relatively small numbers. So, so thankfully on that front, um, the physical side of COVID has been, um, has been fairly minimal for, for most people that have had it. But as you say, that, that study was an excellent one, just looking at the increased anxiety and depression rates. That, um, that, that have been experienced globally. And I think we're very lucky here in Australia that we have not had anywhere near the impacts experienced um, across the board. That's really um, reassuring that's to hear that, uh, yes. you know, if, yes. whether it's um, impact on the mothers or uh, the babies that um, contracting the virus doesn't s seem like, at least from um, what the observations show us to date, doesn't seem like uh, it's, um, you know, had a particularly horrendous effect. Exactly, and obviously we don't know about the longer-term uh, effects of COVID, and there definitely is this, this long COVID phenomena, but whether that is going to be increased in women that were pregnant at the time or um, hopefully their children won't, won't have any of those um, manifestations. But yes, of course, all of that longer-term uh, research will need to, to continue for generations to come. Jess, um, and we do know that... Yeah, sorry. Oh, no, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I have a question for you that might be quite relevant for, um, I guess, for Victoria, for Australia here. Is what's the general advice for women who are trying to become pregnant now and the vac and getting vaccination? Is there a general guidance now? Obviously, a very topical um, question now that the rollout is happening, um, and I myself am halfway between my course of, of vaccinations. Um, that. Uh, at the moment, it's up to a, an individual risk assessment for women. Um, and so we definitely recommend that women uh, discuss the vaccine with your healthcare providers. Um, and that's particularly if you are planning um, on falling pregnant very quickly or if, you, in fact, you are pregnant. For the majority of pregnant women that are otherwise healthy, the current advice is that it is better to postpone vaccination until after the pregnancy. And that's may well be just because of a lack of safety information because we don't know this vaccine is very new and we just don't have the, the, the longitudinal evidence to support it. And so in the absence of safety um, evidence, we have to assume you know, that there is a potential for harm. But it is likely in some of the early um, studies that are happening now um, from overseas data are 
pretty reassuring for the short-term impacts. And so it may well be that over time it is established that it is very safe. And in fact, things like the influenza vaccine, of course, are very strongly recommended for pregnant women. And we know that if you do contract influenza when you're pregnant, you're more likely to have a severe form of the disease and that having the vaccine is very safe and prevents that more small form. So it may well be that it is recommended in the future. But at the moment, for pregnant women, the advice is to discuss it with your obstetrician and your midwife, your treating team, but that unless you do have other risk factors that mean that you're more susceptible to getting COVID or more likely to get a severe form of the disease, it is recommended to postpone it. And then obviously, you know, you can have it after after you've finished, um, you know, the pregnancy. Yeah, that's such that's so interesting and so topical, as you say. And I guess the other question is always chatter about one vaccine or the other, and I wonder whether there's a thought that one is more or less safe for during pregnancy. Exactly, and so the the studies is definitely one um, based on the Pfizer um, vaccine. Um, the Americans, obviously, they're going to be getting more of that Moderna vaccine um, coming out, and so it really is every week there's more and more research, as um, you have both alluded to, um, Panel, whether you're talking about everyone's an expert now, and incre- increasingly, there's so much we're getting so overstimulated, I suppose, with so much information on COVID that, um, yeah, but it is a rapidly evolving space. So I'm sure that by the end of the year, we'll have more um, high quality evidence in which we can then use to guide, guide women and their families. Jess, I also understand, speaking of um, vaccines, I remember you telling me not so long ago um, there have been some significant changes in how um, cervical cancer screening will be conducted. What does that all involve? Yes, um, and that's been very exciting. I suppose over the last um, few decades we've had such um, vast changes in the way that we can detect um, Firstly, with the um, cervical screening program that was brought in in Australia, um, the Papanicolaou screening program, and that was just so effective at being able to pick up changes in the cervix before they reach the cancerous stage. So in the time that's optimal for that intervention to then prevent the disease happening. But then in the last 15 or so years, there's been the exciting development of a vaccine for cervical cancer. Um, And this is now part of the national vaccination schedule in Australia for both boys and girls in um, late primary school. Um, And the uptake has been fantastic now. And um, this is to basically prevent the virus that causes changes um, or precancerous changes and then cancerous changes in the anogenital region. So we know that it prevents um, cancers like cervical cancer. Um, and whilst there's many, many different strains of the virus that is responsible, the human papillomavirus, we know that this vaccine at the moment is good for preventing nine of the more risky strains. And so we're hoping that there's going to be a significant reduction in cervical cancer um, in countries such as Australia where the vaccination program has been rolled out and, um, and the uptake has been high. And that, unfortunately, is obviously not the case in some of our very close neighbours, places like the Pacific and um, some parts of Asia where there isn't a screening program or a vaccination program. But hopefully, over time, we will be able to continue the rollout on a global level to reduce the incidence of this um, terrible cancer that still um, affects uh, many, many women globally. 
I heard you earlier on refer to um, the pap smear with its full name, the Papanikolaou smear, and I just had to repeat that word myself. <laughs> but does that mean the pap smear will go the way of the dodo? It will, exactly. And yeah. even now, um, most women still often refer to it as the pap smear, and we know, of course, what, what women are talking about, but the, um, the pap smear was looking at the cells of the cervix and then now the modern screening test or the cervical screening test is detecting the virus, detecting the presence mm. of the human papillomavirus or the HPV virus. So, so let me just the, get this straight. Rather than needing to have a well, partially invasive procedure and needing to take some cells, i.e. do a pap smear, you're saying that we can... To, to screen for this disease, cervical cancer, and um, the presence of the HPV in the body, we can potentially look to just getting a blood test. Well, over the time, there's, I suppose, the potential for that. At the moment, it still does need a speculum examination. So um, most women, there are some women that can collect the sample themselves, but it is recommended for most women to go to a healthcare provider to have the specimen collected um, and a, a speculum examination is performed and a sample is obtained from around the cervix. Um, but the, the test itself is to detect the virus rather than to, to look at the cells. If you screen negative for the virus now, because it is so sensitive, this test is picking up the virus, and we know that the virus is responsible for 99.7% of cases of cervical cancer. So if you are negative to the virus, it is very reassuring. And so those women are then being sent back uh, into the community and told to only come for another test in five years' time. If, however, you do detect one of those viral subtypes, they still do the same test. So they still look at the cells to see whether there's any evidence of precancerous changes. Um, so it's a bit of a two-step process for the women that screen positive for the virus and it's a way of very easily being able to risk stratify women, which is, um, which is excellent, that we can be very happy that if people are negative, that their risk of developing cancer is very, very low, so we don't need to screen them as intensively. And then for women that screen positive, we can then very quickly work out which subtype of the virus they have and whether that's a higher or a lower risk subtype for developing cancer. And then we can have a look at the cells and then um, stream them into levels of intervention appropriately based on those, that two-stage process. So, Jess, you so answered one of my questions, yes. and that was, I think you answered it, that the screening is every five years. For women that are negative for yeah. the virus, yeah. And then my right. second yeah. question is, um, are there symptoms, like do women, like are there, do, do women present with any symptoms that... Um, that should indicate to us that perhaps we should go and get a test done earlier than the five years? Of course, and that's obviously a very important message that some women um, feel that just because their smear was, was negative that the, there's no chance that they can have developed any precancerous or cancerous changes. And, um, of course, that isn't true, that there's always a small chance that you can have a negative test uh, uh, one or two years ago and then have developed, have had exposure to the virus and then have developed some changes that do need investigation. So there still needs to be a very 
strong public health message that any abnormal bleeding or abnormal vaginal discharge, particularly bleeding after intercourse, bleeding after sex, um, should be investigated and so um, uh, it should prompt you to seek uh, primary health care consultation where they can take another test. Um, and then refer you on to see a gynaecologist who can have a close examination using a microscope to look at the cervix very closely and then potentially take a biopsy, which then can investigate further and much more definitively if there are any changes happening at a cellular level that need further investigation and management. So, yeah, no, an excellent question there. And I, no, and I noted before um, you, you said that boys were also getting vaccinated and so I gather yes. obviously that's to reduce the spread of the virus. Um, that's exactly right and, and we do know that, um, that same-sex attracted boys have had a risk of, of passing the virus as well and that it can be associated with um, sort of anal cancers, it can be associated with pharyngeal or throat cancers, um, it can be associated with penile cancers. So it is an important virus um, can have, you know, quite significant effects um, for both genders um, uh, that, that need to be yeah, prevented. That's very, very interesting. Yeah. Jess, I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise and your knowledge with our listeners. These are very, very important public health messages. So thank you so much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Welcome back to the show, guys, and we're very, very pleased to have Dr. Lowe with us on the phone today to talk about women's health and women's reproductive health. And I have to say, and I'm just going to take this opportunity while I'm on air, Jess, to ask you, I've been ask, wanting to ask this question for a long time now, what does a, a, a typical day look like for you? What do, I know this might be a funny question to ask, but what do laparoscopic gynecological surgeons do? Yes, well, it's another great question that I suppose for me it's uh, the humdrum of a, a daily sort of existence, but um, it's like any career where you really have no insights into what the behind the scenes really looks like, I suppose. Um, so for us, we do a combination of both community um, consultations, so working in a clinic, um, often as well as then working in a hospital, um, both seeing women in clinics there in that, that setting, but then also in the theatre. And so we spend a fair amount of time talking to women about options, the problems that often need a surgical solution. So discussing different varying options and making sure that women are then empowered to make their own decision in terms of the best way forward for them, giving lots of information and often a few consultations initially, working out options or maybe trying... Um, some medications or some other therapies or involving other members of the multidisciplinary team in women's care to try to optimise outcomes. And then um, if for the women that do need to go to theatre, we obviously need to then arrange that and we uh, then perform the surgeries in theatre. So then we spend a fair amount of our day one way and another through the week would be in theatre where we work with a team of other specialists and nursing staff to then perform the, the surgeries that are required and then visiting women and, and caring for 
as they recover, both in hospital, but then once again out in the community and following up and making sure that the on- ongoing management plans are in place. So it's a really lovely thing. And then, of course, um, for those of us who do some obstetrics, then there is caring for women throughout the life course, really. So we see a lot of adolescent girls as they're sort of transitioning into, you know, periods and um, sort of, you know, reproductive function then a bit later on and sexual health and then the whole range of women's health issues um, alongside pregnancy, the one that, that a lot of people sort of instantly identify with our profession. Um, and then as women age, of course, we have another range of potential issues that can arise regarding sort of menopause and continence and prolapse, sexual function. So it's a really, I find, interesting field. And sounds very, very different. And no two days are the same. Yes, I was going to say, sounds very diverse as well. Now, Jess, um, you and I have known each other for a very, very long time, probably longer than we'd like to admit on air because it'll give away our ages. But I am curious to know, I mean, you've gone down this very specialised track now uh, in, in terms of what you do. Um, you know, you trained and qualified as a specialist and now a subspecialist. Has that always been the plan? What made you go down that path and um, what attracted you about this career? Yes, it's a, a great question that um, a lot of people think, oh, okay, that's a fairly specialised and, um, and niche sort of area. Um, I suppose things like endometriosis have always really fascinated me um, as a condition and I think there's increasing awareness of just how prevalent it is that, you know, we're now talking 10 to 15% of women have got this condition and seeing the potential impacts that it can have on women's quality of life, um, both in terms of the pain symptoms, the fertility implications, and then seeing that through navigating sort of the, the, the care options and the management plans and giving women treatment options that, that do work, seeing that improvement in quality of life, it's just uh, it's so gratifying. I suppose it's, it's similar in some ways to sort of caring for someone through their pregnancy and then, and then having such a, a wonderful outcome at the end. And Jess, um, I, I have to admit, it, it's been a little while since um, I've uh, worked in women's reproductive health myself, but maybe also f- um, for the audience as well as for me, just remind us, what, what is endometriosis? Yes, it's a very uh, quite can be quite difficult to conceptualise the, the condition, and so we spend a lot of time with women and their families discussing this on a daily basis. But while um, there's more discussion in the media and um, in workplaces about endometriosis, it's not often really well defined. Um, so basically, it is a condition where there is tissue that is similar to the lining of the uterus but it is present outside the uterus. Um, So it's obviously in a place where it shouldn't be and it's having impacts as a result that then cause some of the symptoms. And so we know that that tissue is usually on a cyclical basis for many women getting sick in anticipation for pregnancy each month after ovulation and then if women don't fall pregnant every month or a lot of women have a period most months, and that lining sheds. But how that lining and those cells, that tissue, ends up outside the uterus, we still don't exactly know. But we think that probably um, a process of what we call retrograde menstruation, where some of that blood then moves upwards through the uterus and through the tubes, 
and then that tissue ends up deposited somewhere through the pelvis and then those little cells can implant in certain women that are susceptible and then grow over time because it's the same tissue as the lining of the uterus. So it responds to the same hormones each month it gets thicker and then bleeds and over time, many months and often years, tiny little cells then become larger deposits and then can, you know, secrete a lot of inflammatory markers that cause a lot of the, the symptoms of endometriosis. And Jess, I um, was doing a bit of research for this um, earlier and I saw that those tissue could even be in like the joints and the bladder, the lung and exactly. even the brain. Um, yes, which it's was a very bizarre condition. Very staggering to me. And I also, in my research, um, correct me if this is wrong, but the cost to the Australian economy was uh, listed as $9.7 billion per annum with two-thirds of exactly. that in lost productivity. Exactly. It has an astounding impact on, on women, but also the entire community. So it obviously, a lot of the symptoms, the pain, the incapacity, and the, the incapacity then to function. So women has an incredible impact on their, their relationships, that, um, that, that intimate relationships can be very painful, um, that, that fertility can be a real issue for a lot of, a lot of couples. Um, but then women end up in such pain often for many days, potentially, or sometimes for the whole way through the month, that they then can't function as partners, as parents, as employees, that it's very difficult for a lot of women to work at a full-time level. Um, so, yeah, as you say, it has, has a significantly more substantial impact on the economy than a condition such as diabetes that instantly comes wow. to mind. exactly. As something yeah. that, um, that uh, you know, costs the taxpayer and the Australian government an enormous amount um, and uh, this is increasing all the time um, both yeah we think that maybe women delaying childbearing has resulted in an increased incidence an increased incidence of, of more significant symptoms which is in and of itself obviously a sociological um, issue um, but yes that that impact at the at the sociological level really can't be understated um, so yeah I think that's that's uh, part of the intrigue of this condition and also just understanding that you, there are so many treatments that unfortunately there's still not a lot of public awareness about. Um, so we have you know, adolescent and young women and, and middle-aged women after middle-aged women coming in sort of saying, I only wish I had have known that that level of pain that I put up with for often more than a decade before women seek help um, wasn't normal and I had have escalated earlier. So and just this hopefully is... the message can get out. Very much an intriguing and, uh, and, and a very big issue, both medically as well as sociologically and economically. And we might not be able to do it justice in the few, few minute remaining, but how is it treated and how effective is the treatment? Yeah, so there are effective treatments and not it's not a one treatment fits all um, solution, unfortunately, because that would make it a lot more easy for us to sort of um, to treat women and for primary healthcare providers to offer satisfactory treatments. And so often it is tailoring treatments to the individual woman, depending on how bad their symptoms, what symptoms they have, what their treatment goals are. Um, and so they can be a combination um, of both um, medical treatments, so there's uh, analgesics, so pain relieving medications with hormonal treatments such as the pill or IUDs, the intrauterine devices or other stronger hormones that can be used. 
And then there are surgical treatments. So for women who are wanting to fall pregnant, sometimes that involves needing treatments such as IVF. Um, and for women with more of the pain symptoms or fertility, a combination, then surgical treatments through keyhole surgery to treat the, the areas of the disease. Um, and so that often in, involves a, a, a surgical procedure. Jess, thank you very much for that very succinct summary and I can't thank you enough for um, the sharing your knowledge and your expertise with our listeners today. I'm sure a lot of um, women, as well as men in our listener base out there, got a lot out of it. I also wanted to thank CyberSue for coming on the show today and for um, your um, contribution to um, our discussion with Dr. Lowe today and to yourself, panel beater. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.